Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. My next guest on the Bravery Academy is Dr. Jim Deturt. And in today's episode, he's going to share his wisdom around courage. His book, Choosing Courage, helps people learn around how you can speak truth to power. His wisdom and stories are a powerful way of learning when to choose courage, what we can do, and how we can take control in all aspects of our life. Welcome, Jim, to the Bravery Academy. I'm excited to talk to you all about courage today and hear about your journey to writing, researching, and sharing this knowledge. Before we start, can I find out where you live and where you're from? Sure. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is sort of center of Virginia. It's where the University of Virginia is. Uh, been here about seven years. Uh, this is the furthest south I've ever lived. I grew up in Wisconsin, way up in the north in the U.S., and spent time in states like Massachusetts and New York and Minnesota. So I'm a northern, northern boy at heart. So the work we're going to talk about today is your journey to understand courage, the research around that. What made you start to look at this area? So I had been, you know, I was a, in graduate school, I was a student of Amy Edmondson's, you know, psychological safety. And my dissertation was around sort of why it's safe or not to speak up. And at the time, I quickly learned as, you know, sort of obvious and intuitive, when people think it's safe to speak up at work, they generally will do so. When they think it's unsafe, they generally won't. But there was always a small category of stories I heard in initial interviews and in some of my quantitative data of people telling me either for themselves or others, yeah, it's not safe and I still speak up or he or she still, you know, takes the risk to be innovative or or say the hard thing. And I actually wrote an initial draft of a paper 20 plus years ago now called No Guts, No Glory. And then I didn't do anything with it for a decade. But I was teaching all that time. I was teaching courses in leadership. And at the end of my courses on leadership, I would always end with just a sort of wrap up where I would say, look, you know, I hope you agree. We've put a bunch of 
tools in your toolkit, but I don't actually think it matters. Like if we had twice as much time, I could give you a whole bunch additional tools. It wouldn't really matter because what will ultimately matter in your success as a leader and frankly, in your life journey is whether you have the courage to use those tools when the time calls for it. And then I would just give a couple examples and say, you know, so come on, go out and do it. And I started to consistently get this feedback. We need a whole module on this. Why isn't the whole course about this? And I should have said, these were people like age 35 to 50. These were executive MBA type students. And I just, I had this growing sense that people at that age, right, who've been working 10, 15, 20 years at that point, I often would go home and say to my wife, like this set of faces reminds me of like Thoreau's statement about, you know, most people live lives of quiet desperation. You know, that, that people were sort of looking at me like, is this all there is? I probably got to work 30 more years. Is this all it's going to be? And I think just that experience of seeing how desperately people wanted work and in some cases their life to be more, but just didn't quite know how to to be more courageous in a way that didn't feel like complete like career suicide just really became the motivation to dig in. And it's obviously that you're focused around career and work as courage because as courage obviously acts in lots of different ways. Why work and organizations for you? So first of all, it's the domain, right? I'm, I'm trained as essentially an organizational psychologist. So it's what I know the most about. You know, another thing that sort of drives me more generally is if you do the math, you know, most of us, say we're going to start full-time work at the latest in our young 20s. And, you know, with life expectancy now, we may work till our mid-70s or beyond. So if you do the math and you say, okay, subtract out sleep, unquestionably, the the thing we spend the most hours of our entire adult life doing is working. So why not focus on, you know, if people are miserably disengaged, if they feel abused, mistreated, if they hate their environment and feel a complete loss of autonomy, that's the majority of waking hours of their life. They experience those things, you know, in the U S you know, I know you do as well. Just called something different right in the U S we have the first amendment right to free speech. But free speech just means that like out on the street, I can say something negative about my government and they can't do anything to me. In about 90% of workplaces in America, I can be fired at will on the spot for saying something that a boss doesn't like. So even things as like foundational as like a First Amendment free speech, right? You don't have that in most workplaces. So why not study workplaces? I mean, it, it is the domain we spend our lives And frankly, where we give up a lot of what we would consider in democracies as pretty fundamental rights. So what do you define as courage? Well, I think, you know, we could get fancy about it. We could put some, you know, a bunch of additional components to it. But really, the simplest way to think about it, I think, is just an action that meets two criteria. One has to have some element of like perceived risk to whoever is judging the action. It has to be risky and it has to be for some worthy cause. If I go bungee jumping, that's, that's risky potentially, but I don't think we call that courageous in, in a meaningful sense since, you know, society is not served in any particular way by me or you going bungee jumping. So it's really just risky act done for a worthy reason. That courage to step up and make change is actually really hard. What I loved what you talked about was the, that paper you're writing then no guts no glory can you actually come back to that i feel like there's a little bit of story in there what did you learn well i think like so much of life you know 
like our capacity, for example, to really truly be happy or satisfied is the flip side of our willingness to suffer like the true vulnerability of terrible loss, right? You can't really have one without the other. And I think the same thing is true of of so many things we would want for ourselves and others in the sense of, you know, a workplace or just a decent society, right? We can say anything we want about equity and lack of abuse and jobs that provide meaning and autonomy and growth. We can say all of that and and companies that actually take seriously the notion of making a difference instead of just making more money. But none of that's actually going to happen if we're not willing to stick our neck out and take some risk. And so I, I really do think it's a big folly. And frankly, it's a big problem in all of society that uh, it's very easy to espouse all sorts of things. And it's very hard to then do the work it would take to get there. It's also like I work with folks on, for example, building courage ladders and then taking steps one you know, at a time. And it's it's very much based on concepts that you know very, very well, you know, desensitization concepts from uh, the psychotherapy literature. And I can tell you from, you know, having done this with thousands and thousands of folks, you ask people in the context like of a business school degree program or an executive education program in a company, build a courage ladder. It's clearly that context is business. Half of the items people put on their courage ladders are, I'm going to finally have that conversation with my mom or my dad or my sibling I've been estranged from. Because, right, it turns out that if you can't manage your physiological reactions well, if you can't figure out ways to sort of tame that inner dialogue that's saying all the wrong stuff to you, you know, all the stuff that cognitive behavioral therapy deals with, and if you don't have any sort of interpersonal communication toolkit, you're not going to be some genius at interpersonal conversations in your personal life, but just stink at it at work or vice versa, right? So the stuff I'm interested in, I, I'm very, very clear. I don't care what domain you practice in, just practice. I love that. I love the fact that you're coming back to the, the regulation of self in so many different ways. And if you don't do that, the flow in is you're not going to have the connections of vulnerability and, like you said, the courage to move forward and things. That's right. So... What stops people from being courageous? Well, I mean, if we talk about sort of kinds of risk, if you say to people, well, you've said X, Y, Z is important to you, but you know, you don't want to do it. Why? You'll generally get stories that have one or more of four kinds of fear mm. or risk. There's the physical, right? In some contexts in particular, I mean, yeah, I could actually get physically harmed. In most work contexts, it's three other kinds of risk economic or career or professional, right? At the extreme, I don't want to get fired, but way short of getting fired, I can get blackballed. I can get overlooked for promotion. I can sort of be given the worst work. There could be all sorts of pro professional consequences. There are social consequences. I can be ostracized. I can sort of lose relationships. I can be in the out group. And I think, you know, there's little question now exactly how accurate the science is about, you know, these notions that like to feel ostracized triggers sort of similar parts of the brain as like physical pain. Yeah. And whether that's exactly true or not, I think what we do know is true is from an evolutionary perspective, you know, for most of our time on earth, like if your small clan or, or band or tribe, right, kicked you out of the group, you were going to live maybe a day or two because you were not going to be able to hunt gather, you know, protect yourself from neighboring tribe or wild animals by yourself. So it's actually not irrational at all, even though physically we're not at that kind of risk anymore. It's not irrational at all that our brain would have adapted to care deeply about being ostracized. 
if you ask, for example, why don't peers confront each other at work, right? They don't generally hold the key to like firing or holding people back, but they can ostracize you, right? And then there's psychological um, risks or fear. So, you know, when you say like, why aren't people more innovative? Why don't they try to learn new skills? Why don't they try? A lot of that is frankly self-censoring in the sense of, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to feel incompetent. So, you know, you put it all together. Why don't people do it? They got all sorts of fears. And then I think you have to add to that, that the nature of the brain, again, for survival reasons, is that whatever the objective risks are, we tend to overestimate them. Why? Because it's more important that I think I see a snake and, you know, jump 10 times and be wrong all 10 times and still alive than it is to one time not jump and be wrong and be dead. So whatever the actual risks along those dimensions are, we also are going to tend to probably think they're actually higher than they are. So right. when you've looked at the risks of speaking up, I, this is one thing I love because I've been listening to your book. So your Choosing Courage book has been really fascinating, bringing these stories through. So if anybody wants to listen to that or read it, then I highly encourage getting Jim's Choosing Courage book. But what I've loved in it is the very simple way that you outline speaking truth to power. So the element of when when courage feels challenging is when that power imbalance is there and how that can block us and therefore how does courage sort of play out in the workplace in that power conflict. I guess I'm asking, how did you even discover that? Well, I think probably because I started in this domain of psychological safety, like my first big research project that ended up being my dissertation was in a Fortune 50 company that had done, you know, the typical annual employee survey with, you know, 80 questions, 20 different domains. And one of the areas they had scored quite poorly on against, you know, global high performing company norms was questions around it's safe to speak up around here. It's safe to challenge traditional ways around here, questions like that. And so that very first project, it was very clear. And then most of my initial research and my colleagues' research documented over and over and over again that there are these fears of speaking up that you know are associated with it's not safe. If you go sort of back from there and say, well, what seems to cause in organizational context those fears or be you know correlated with those fears? It's leader behavior, leader actions, leader symbols. So leaders became just clearly implicated in organizations. You know, there's just there's something very fundamental about hierarchy. And again, you know, there's some debate, as you know, in the literature about as a species, are we a more egalitarian species, you know, like bees or whatever, or are we more sort of hierarchical, like some of the great ape species? And, you know, personally, where I come down on that is I think it's pretty clear. We're very clearly evolved to understand like dominance and submission hierarchies. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're evolved to understand like the functional notion of hierarchy itself. Everything I observe is that we are almost prepared when we enter organizational contexts. We're almost prepared to understand that there is a structure of authority, much like a family, much like yeah. schooling. So that's what we're being brought up with. And yeah. then I, I like what you're talking about with leadership because that's really the driver of courage in business. How do leaders create psychological safety in business? You know, it's interesting. Amy Edmondson and others who do work on psychological safety, and I... I mean, often end up sort of working with organizations in, in succession because it turns out it just sounds easier. Like if you say, hey, we have to work on psychological safety, everybody says, that's a great idea. 
Because what they're thinking is somebody else has to make it safe for me. In contrast, when you say, hey, we have to work on courageous behavior around here. Everybody's like, oh, no, 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 that's me. I don't want to do that. Uh, so often what will happen is they'll read stuff around psychological safety and they'll become convinced like we have to create a safe environment. And they'll work on that a bit. But then they eventually pretty quickly realize you can't just wave a magic wand and get psychological safety. Um, people, generally people with power, have to actually change some things. They have to change structures that decide who's at the table with an equal voice. They have to change, you know, stimuli like that tell you, you know, is this a long rectangular table where it's crystal clear where the most powerful people sit and where the less powerful people sit in the back? Or are we going to move to like circular tables where, you know, by definition, a round table has no head? Our leaders going to say, we can't keep talking about helping people feel that it's safe and equitable when we ourselves as leaders never admit mistakes. We never apologize. We never say we need help because we don't know something. We are telling our own people, oh, speak up, push back, whatever. But they see us around our own bosses meekly saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. You know, it turns out that actually what you have to do to create psychological safety in a lot of ways is the leaders themselves have to be courageous. They have to be willing to change power structures and challenge them. How do we train that? If you think about like the U.S. Army and, and many other leader development sort of focused places, talk about models of leadership development that are essentially like be, no do, right? So have this identity that you're a leader, have knowledge about leading, but then doing, right? You have to you have to put the skills into action in relevant contexts. And, you know, frankly, I think where the vast majority of business school education on leadership and frankly, organizational company sponsored kind of activities, consulting firm based activities get it wrong is they're way too focused on sort of being and, and in particular on knowing, like if I get you to memorize a lot of things about leadership, that would somehow translate into behavior, which of course we know it won't. But even where... And this is directly related to sort of like, what's my approach? Even where people will say, no, I'm trying to be more experiential. I'm trying to be case-based. I'm trying to be whatever, practice-based. The truth is many of the hardest aspects of leader behavior and the most important aspects of leader behavior happen in sort of ambiguous, high-stress, emotion-laden situations, right? They are those really difficult conversations with a boss, an irate client, some crisis that has come out of nowhere upon us. Uh, a subordinate we like, but is terribly performing and is either crying or angry when we give them some difficult news. You know, that to me is the heart of like when you have to be able to behave skillfully. And the problem in most approaches to leadership development is that even when we think we're having people practice, we're having them do that in a very cognitively cool way. We're saying, oh, read about it and just, you know, sit back in your armchair and think about it. And then we'll just talk about it calmly. But that's exactly not the conditions of action, right? And so that's where I draw a lot in what I do on, again, what we know from exposure therapy, desensitization therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Essentially, I, I have developed a lab in many cases, hook people up to physiological equipment that measures galvanic skin response, respiration rate, you know, EKG patterns. And I use trained actors from places like the Washington Improv Theater to enact like high stress business simulations with participants while they're being tracked physiologically. And then I use software that maps 
the physiological response patterns against the audiovisual of the actual simulation. And then we coach against that. And then I teach particular, hey, here are some physiological control techniques. Here are some cognitive inner dialogue. You know, here's how to recognize when you are catastrophizing all or nothing thinking and how to replace it in real time. And then here's these behavioral skills for calming yourself and others down, for actually empathizing, for avoiding triggering words. You know, I have a pedagogy that's very much about saying you have to have a toolkit. You have to be able to calm yourself physiologically. You have to calm your thinking. You have to behave. But unless we practice it under actually high stress conditions, it's not going to work for you in real time. Yeah. I love the fact that you're tracking the physiology because people still are quite disconnected until after the fact that they've been hijacked. So are you giving them visual feedback as well of how their body language was in those moments? Yeah, so we are a videotape. So the software, we then have melds the physio to the audio visual of the simulation in perfect synchronicity. And then we feed them back the entire video and They'll do self-review. Sometimes we'll do fear, peer feedback review, and we'll do executive coaching where the coach has also watched the video before the session happens. So absolutely. And yeah, you're right. I mean, we have participants, right? Who'll be like, prior to a simulation, let's say, you know, people are all the time telling me my problem as a leader is that I'm condescending, but I don't know what they're talking about. I don't think I am at all. <laughs> and then they go through the simulation. They come in the next day and they've watched their video. Say, oh, what'd you learn? That person's hand shoots up. Yeah. It was exactly 12 seconds in when they said something, the actor said something, and I rolled my eyes and I realized, oh my God, I'm totally condescending. And so I think you're right. I mean, people are detached from how they're showing up and people are detached, frankly, from their emotions in many cases. You know, if you teach in any context, you have this experience of somebody suddenly leans forward, their face is red, they almost pound the table and their voice goes way up, right? And they... Ah, this is why. And then I'll calmly say, Emma, you seem upset. Yeah. And I say, and they say, no, I'm not. No, I'm fine. I'm not. And so, I mean, at the very beginning, one of the things I thought would be really interesting using all this technology was like, if I taught them no skills or anything, literally just helping people break through their utter lack of connection between like their physiological response and what in their head they were experiencing. Because I think um, Joe Ledoux has it right. Like when he talks about the amygdala hijack, the HPA access stuff, right? He, he calls that actually defense circuitry. Yep. He doesn't call that an emotional reaction. He says it's defense circuitry. It's just like all other animals. Yep. It happens immediately. There's no consciousness to it. It just happens. It prepares you for fight or flight. You know, your dog has that same thing. Your dog sees a huge bear or whatever. Your dog has a defense circuit reaction just like you do. Um, what your dog doesn't have that you have is the ability to say, I'm afraid or I'm angry, right? What dogs don't have is the executive functioning to label <laughs> patterns of that reactivity. And what's clear in research is that you can get correlations between physiological symptoms of arousal and then like, I was afraid or I was angry that I was low as like 0.1, you know, essentially no overlap between unquestionable physiological reactions, physical reactions, and then the perception, the reporting of those emotions. Is that so that that's that repression? So they don't sense that they are in that space because I love learning about the emotional regulation in the first place and suppression and the impact that it has on the nervous system and others in the room. We don't realize that when we're suppressing emotions, our blood pressure goes up and the other person's blood pressure goes up. 
just even though we're not even saying anything. So it's this missing language here. But that's a fascinating yeah. from a point of repression where people, they don't realize that this is actually what's coming up. That the defense is actually to block that sensation. Well, or to mislabel all the time too. Yeah. And I think this is one of the places where you see gender socialization effects, right? So, you know, uh, a man or a woman can experience the same stimulus and a man, because it's culturally acceptable, the man will be you know, raging and telling you how he's angry as all hell, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then we'll tolerate that. And and the woman will start crying and tell you how she's so afraid and blah, blah, blah. Same stimulus. But right, we've learned that certain labels for the same experience are even culturally more or less acceptable. And I think, you know, what I hope we're finally moving toward is a breaking down of kind of the craziness of mislabeling based on all kinds of crazy socialization. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. I I often joke that my book is called Choosing Courage, but it it probably should have been called Choosing Competent Courage because I I never had any intention whatsoever for the subtitle of my book to be like, Choosing Courage, colon, how to ruin your career and life in five minutes or less, right? Like, I, I have no desire to teach people how to be organizational martyrs or throw it all away or, you know, look, every once in a while, and I, I think there are issues you could decide around your very, very core values, your bottom lines. You could say, look, there are a small number of issues around which I will speak up sort of consequences be damned. It would just be worth it. Like the reason to do it would be because it'll be the only way I can be authentic and go to sleep at night. But the vast majority of the time for the vast majority of people, yeah, we don't want to sort of risk it all just to speak up to 
address a problem or or improve a situation. So what does that mean? It means it's not just about sort of being courageous, just about being willing to to take a risk to do something. It's also about skills, right? You have to be competent. You have to learn how to do things sort of before those important moments. You have to learn how to do things skillfully in those moments. And then you even have to learn how to do important things after. And, you know, yeah, some of that is about vulnerability, but I think one of the things that if we just encourage people to be vulnerable, we would be setting them up actually in what I think is a, is a problematic way. You know, for example, if I just show up in a brand new organization and nobody actually knows yet that I'm competent also, mm-hmm. like, hey, this guy can get things done. He can deliver tremendous value. If people don't know that about me and I show up and just right out of the gate, I start telling a story about when my mom died and I cry a lot and I, Tell them, you know, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of terrified this is all going to blow up on us. Um, that's not going to go well. Like vulnerability, vulnerability in the absence of evidence of competence that's is a big problem. Yeah. Vulnerability, like displayed really poorly, big problem. So I'm a fan of vulnerability, but not in some completely like unfettered, just go to work and have everybody think you need to be hospitalized. That That's not going to work. That's such a great explanation because, again, when you read your book as well, I think it's understanding that vulnerability in context is really important. And it's actually understanding no. when, when to choose courage and when not to choose courage. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I have zero interest in war, military context, whatever. But I think this is a case where that's a really good use of that context is only like an absolutely ludicrous army, right, would essentially say, let's just storm the beaches of Normandy. With no weapons, no strategy, no shot in hell of anybody surviving. Like, I don't think we'd call that courage. We'd call that some kind of stupidity, right? So why wouldn't the same be true in general in other domains? Yeah, we want people to take risks, but they should be prudent risks based on a reasonable calculation of what the situation is and how to do it better and how to be prepared. And that's much more interesting to me. So how do we encourage connection? in the workplace and conversation in the workplace? How do we do that as an individual? Because we can't control everybody else. So how do we take those steps? Well, I think the starting point is actually the mindset of saying like, you you do what you can control, which is you. I know that one of the mistakes people make is when they think about like how to evaluate what's happened. They'll say, well, hey, you know, Jim, I used all these tools. I took perspective. I inquired. I accepted their emotions and I was competently vulnerable, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in the end, they didn't listen or they just fought back and got defensive anyway, or they stormed out. So I guess it was a failure. And I say, no, I think you're totally wrong. That's the wrong criterion, because what you're now doing is saying that success or failure is dependent fully on somebody else's behavior, the part you could never control. I say, look, for me, the measures at the end of the day, when you tried to you know, build connection or solve a problem or have a hard you know, conversation. The measure at the end of the day is, can you look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm proud of the way I behaved. I was compassionate. I was decent. I gave my side of the story and also gave them space for their side of the story. You know, if you sort of, you know, tick down that list of like what you were trying to do, if you did that as well as you could or pretty close, then you succeeded. But you have to give up this notion that you have full control of everybody else you work with or everybody in your personal life. I mean, you, you don't. 
And it's funny, we know that in some domains, although people struggle with it in all domains, right? I mean, it's easy when we're standing back rationally to say, if you have someone with some kind of substance or other addiction, ultimately, you could say all the right things as a form of intervention or effort support. But if that person isn't there, if they're not ready, you're not going to change them. You're not going to succeed, right? You can only control you. Blowing on from that, I guess I'd love to know what were the key things that these 20 plus years looking at courage has taught you? I think one of the important places to start are just sort of dispelling a couple myths that I think really get in the way. One is that people really walk around with sort of a you know, a myth, an incorrect belief that some part of like courage or courageous action is some innate capacity that some people have and others don't, you know, as if it's some kind of personality trait, like when you and I die, they're going to do an autopsy and they're going to find like some bigger lump of courage in you than me. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I and others have looked high and low, right? If you go back to people who studied Germans, Poles, French, who sheltered Jews for years during the Holocaust. And they were deeply trying to understand like what differentiated the people who were willing to do that. Or in the Milgram shock experiments, what explained the smaller percentage of people who actually resisted the authority and said, no, I won't do that. And from those studies on up, the truth is we've had a very, very hard time finding some personality explanations for courageous behavior. The truth is there is no magic personality and that sort of related to, you know, what is sort of a second myth, which is that somehow these are easy skills that just come. It's not true. We know that you don't become a world-class swimmer or pianist or anything else without thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice. So why would we think that in the domain of like being competently courageous and skilled, you know, interpersonally, why would we think that's just innate as opposed to something you have to practice over and over and over and over? So. You know, I think this myths, it's not a personality. It doesn't come easy without practice. I think sadly, I've learned that those myths lead to too many people letting themselves off the hook. Like, oh, I hope somebody else does it. It's easier for somebody else. And I, I, I always say to that, like, would you agree that courage is a really important virtue? It's a cardinal virtue. And everybody says, yeah, of course. I say, well, okay. Do you think kindness is a virtue? Yeah. Do you think kindness is the responsibility of only 10% of us 10% of the time? Is it? No, of course not. Do you think moderation or prudence is a virtue? Yeah, of course. Do you think it's only responsibility for 10% of us to be moderate or prudent? No, of course not. If you start listing other virtues, we generally would accept most of us are supposed to try to do those things most of the time. But somehow we put courage in this other category sort of all on its own and we say yeah that's just sort of this thing that's optional for some people some of the time and not to be depressing about it but i think i do find it a little disheartening having studied for 20 years how many people in otherwise free countries right like yours and and mine give up so much of their agency right like just don't day in day out let things go by that they're not really okay with for others or let their own life be suboptimal and don't just don't grab that and do something about it. You know, if you say like, well, what drives me to keep going, keep, that's it. It's that sense of like how, how sad, how tragic that people feel so impotent in so many areas of their life. But, you know, like, as you well know, from with your background and experience, the good news is 
starting to see change isn't the massive mountain it appears to be at first, right? It turns out that, you know, you can build a courage ladder. You can put a few important steps on there, some of which are not that scary or risky. You can learn a couple key skills or ideas and you can take small steps. You can have that conversation you've been avoiding. You can you know, try that new thing. And pretty quickly, people realize how much they were overestimating the fear and the risk. They realize how much they were underestimating their own capacity. I mean, so if the depressing side is there's so much lost, you know, opportunity and so much agency foregone, that's the sad side. But that for me, the positive, the optimistic side is I can see how readily people can make progress when they decide they're ready to take those steps. I think so many areas of research, too, are now being kind of reshaped. As you know, for decades, we talked about stress as if it was only bad. It was just unambiguously like stress was a set of stimuli. And if we had stress in our life, it was going to kill us soon. And now, right, we say, well, you know, actually, people can have very high levels of objective stress or like Mm -hmm. what a lot of people would call a lot of stress. But those who view stress as challenge, as exciting as an opportunity to learn and grow, they show none of those toxic sort of effects of stress. In fact, they have some better health outcomes on some dimensions. And so one of the really exciting things about the era we're in scientifically is we're learning so much about the brain and not just biochemical wiring, but we're also learning about cognitively how the way we choose to frame things. And no one forces us to make sense of the world in a certain way. Um, that, that itself is a misnomer, right? We decide. One of the people I profile in the book, the founder of a company who was deeply, deeply committed to use his business to do social good. And so he wanted to help people get off intergenerational poverty through employment. He decided he wanted to help previously convicted prison felons reintegrate in society by giving them you know, chances at new beginnings. And the first few times he tried these programs, hiring folks from these communities, you know, failed miserably. Like after short periods of time, none of the people hired were left. And everybody around him was saying like, oh, this is a failure. This is a disaster. And all he ever said was, what do you mean it's a failure? This is great data for learning. Now we know what didn't work. We can sort of hone what we're doing. And even the capacity to take what most of us would call failure (laughs) and just reframe it as, this is just data for learning. Yeah, I learned that many years ago in my career, early career as a physiotherapist in New Zealand. We had this exceptional physio who's world-class, but it's a New Zealander, Brian Mulligan. And I remember him saying that when he'd have someone come in, he was teaching us in my master's program, someone would come in. And they'd be the next day after treatment and they'd come back worse. And he goes, isn't that great? We've learned something. We've just learned something. That doesn't work. Yeah. Right, let's try this. And it was just this, we have the ability to reframe it if we choose. We're just often so busy we don't pause to reframe. We do. And again, this goes to, let's say, the deficit in society. If you are surrounded by people who, when you started, say, oh, I feel like a failure, oh, this is a disaster, someone close to you immediately said, No, what an awesome opportunity to learn, right? If routinely those around us helped us reframe, well, we'd be in good shape. The challenge is we're actually surrounded by people who say, yeah, that sucks, life sucks, right? We have these sort of negative frames, 
And so many other people around us have the frames too. The counter narrative is not yet common enough. It's very, very hard to heal from prior wounds if you are continuing to subject yourself to new wounds. So for me, like a, really a core rule of life is no new wounds. And it's painful, right? But if you won't say, hey, I can't keep subjecting myself to like this negative pattern of, of behavior, speech, whatever from my family, if I'm ever going to actually forgive my family, um, then the only way is to be strong enough to pull away. And that can be true in work context, it can be true in life, right? And that's hard. That, that, that feels like a whole nother risk you're asking people to take. But I don't actually believe in the theory that says if you have a deep wound or trauma, you know, from childhood or whatever, I don't actually think you ever 100% get rid of it. I think you can learn through a lot of work to sort of minimize its negative influence on your daily life and shorten how long when it does crop back up, it does harm. And I think of that in a physical kind of metaphor way. I say, like, imagine you had terrible knee injury playing sport as a kid. You could rehab that. And the vast majority of the time, it's just fine. But, you know, maybe when it's really humid out or maybe you do too much exercise of a certain type, well, yet that knee's going to act up again. And then you just sort of learn what to do to shorten the amount of time. But the key is... you don't get a hammer out and hit your knee again. You, you got to avoid a major new wound if you're going to get on in life. Really powerful. I've loved our time today, Jim. So I really want to thank you for your time and wisdom, the research you're doing. I love your book, and I'm really excited for others to learn more about this and to step into their life in a courageous way. I enjoy it. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level, visit patreon.com forward slash the Bravery Academy to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes. Your feedback means the world to us. So please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being part of the Bravery Academy community. Stay brave, stay curious, and keep challenging yourself to grow. Until next time.